Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. I think for me, you know, my initial interest in this space was because I had suspected I was an ApoE4 carrier. I'm not. However, there's a strong family history of heart disease that I have, and I would like to reduce my risk of developing atherosclerosis. And I think that, you know, what I'm looking for and what I think a decent amount of people are looking for is what is the optimal human diet? You know, not, not yeah. what is, um, not, not what's going to make me lose weight, not what's going to, you know, necessarily make my brain work faster. It's just what is optimal human diet? And I think that there's a lot of evidence um, to the fact that uh, decreasing carbohydrates, decreasing glycation of uh, LDL, preventing, you know, small dense LDL particle, uh, you know, accumulation Mm -hmm. um, is, would be a good idea for me to decrease my, my heart disease risk, uh, personally. But so, you know, I, uh, I, I know that you have been working on this cookbook that came out recently, right? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, so it's Mediterranean and ketogenic, right? Yeah. And- so, it, yeah, I put together that cookbook with some chefs, um, when I was over in Oxford as part of an education tool, there's a lot of you know, educational resources in it, but just to, there are a lot of misconceptions about what low carb and even keto looks like. I right. feel like you're keto and they're like, Oh, you're eating a lot of butter and cheese and saturated fat and you're getting rid of all that fried fried stuff whatever and 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 that's what i would call like dirty keto thinking right. about keto that way is like thinking about a vegan diet that's composed only of oreos an oreo diet's a vegan diet perfectly vegan it's a pretty shitty vegan diet so you can do any diet in a bad way and you can do a keto in a diet in a bad way but a ketogenic diet is just about where you're getting your macronutrients so we, 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 I wanted to do this book because almost a Trojan horse. It's like the new Mediterranean diet cookbook. It just so happens that it's a low carb diet cookbook, but it's like, you look at the recipes, it's, you know, you can eat a lot of things like chocolates and um, you can make halvas, coconut butter, lots of salmon, avocado, macadamia nuts. Um, I think it's, you know, you, you can look up the website, we can link it in the show notes. So I won't, I won't go off on the, the, the book to make a selling point, but the point is, it's actually a very flexible lifestyle. You can do a lot of ways. If you want to prioritize fiber, fine. If you want to be vegetarian, fine. Vegan's a little harder. But I've worked with a lot of people who are vegetarian keto, and it works for them. Other people are carnivore, and that works for them too. They actually have incredible metabolic health. Um, a lot of them, which I know that sounds like an extreme lifestyle, but the metabolic markers say that it's working for them. Um, you don't need to eat any given food, but you can eat so many different things. Um, so like, for example, let me, let me just give a sense of, you know, the the proteins, you can have any fish or poultry or eggs or meats or pork, tofu or tempeh, if you like, you can have lots of dairy, like cheeses, if you like them. Um, and then vegetables, there's so many low carb vegetables, you know, you, you can cook with and have them in really rich forms, like arugula, asparagus, bok choy, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, celery, cucumber, eggplant, endive, fennel, green beans, kale, lettuce, mushrooms, nori, radish, like zucchini, the list just goes on and on. Some of these things, 
like fennel, it tastes remarkably sweet and it's four grams of net carbs per hundred grams. Spinach is like one gram of net carb per hundred grams. So you can have so many vegetables and seeds and nuts. And, and what I find is when people figure out, you know, the menu of options that works for them and start to cook, it actually isn't a restrictive diet, but a liberating diet. Because what people realize when you cut out the sweet, and there are some substitutes you can use if you really want sweet, but I, I always advise people to try to go without sweet is, is you realize you don't actually like need it or want it. That it's not, it, you, you ha, you're, you're liberated from these cravings. It's like people are like, oh, Nick, you don't have anything sweet in any of the time. That must be terrible. I'm like, I don't even want it. Like, I think the terrible thing is being attached to these cravings, needing to eat every three or four hours, seeing that donut and be like, I have to resist. I have to resist. It's so difficult. Imagine being liberated from that feeling and being able to eat intuitively. And, and, and that's actually the catch, I think. I think that's the biggest lifestyle benefit, aside from the Alzheimer's potential. That's the biggest lifestyle benefit of a, a properly formulated low-carb or ketogenic diet is you're actually able to eat intuitively. Because you hear that dietitians and nutritionists say that, quote, you should eat in moderation or eat intuitively. And the essence, of that, uh, the essence of that advice is so spot on. You should be able to listen to your body and give it what it needs. But there's a catch. Because most of us are metabolically unhealthy and addicted to sugar. And we can do a whole other thing on sugar addiction because it is a thing. Like sugar cross-synthesizes with cocaine and amphetamines, same processes in the brain. Sugar is an addiction. What you can't eat intuitively until you liberate yourself from metabolic disease and that addiction, which is a beyond a habit. And to do that, you do kind of need to reduce the carbs for a while, but then you're liberated and then you can eat intuitively. And when I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, it's remarkable to see that like light bulb go off in their head. I'll give you one example. I was working with one of the first people I ever worked with, he was a chef. So he was in the kitchen all day, an executive chef, and he was supposed to taste all the things like the desserts. And I, I, I never thought I'd be able to make any headway with him because he was just being tempted all the time. But we reduced the carbohydrates and over a little while, he's like, this is so weird. I don't have any cravings. Like I have this cake out in front of me and I just don't even want it. And he's dropping weight. He reversed his diet pre-diabetes. He reversed his obesity. And over time, he's just like, I can't believe, I, I just feel freed from these carb cravings. Like I don't even want the sugar anymore. And if I do want it every now and then, and have a little bit, I get so much more bang for my buck. It's actually crazy how much your tastes adapt. I used to be basically sugar addicted. I was a you know distance runner. I get back from a long run, I drink a jar of Nutella, like nothing. Now I can have like a little, like a couple wild blueberries and they taste sweeter than ice cream ever did for me. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but it is a genuine truth. If you cut out sweet for a while, you start to enjoy sweet things when you have them and you can doesn't mean you can never have them again, a lot more um, because you're not habituated to them and, and, and your, your sweet perception in your brain actually resets. So I just, I've worked with so many people and no matter what way they slice it, they always get to that point of, I started it for this reason. Usually it's weight loss. I started it for this reason, but now I'm sticking with it because I'm liberated from cravings. I can eat intuitively, eat what I want, indulge if I want. If I want a 12 ounce ribeye steak with some butter, I feel like that one night and I overeat and I feel like kind of, uh, I'm fine because I know my body will just get hungry again naturally when I need it. So maybe I won't eat breakfast. Maybe I won't eat lunch. Maybe I won't eat for 24 hours. It's fine. I'm running on fat. I have a ton of energy. It feels great. 
I don't feel tied to food, but if I'm a busy doctor and I don't have time to get a meal, my body can just run off with body fat. It knows how to do that now. Because your body actually learns to then actually burn body fat, which most of our bodies now don't know how to do. So it's tremendously liberating and people love the lifestyle once they adapt to it. It's getting over that hump of, I can't believe I can't, I can't give up my Haagen-Dazs or my Halo Top or my cereal. If you do it for a while, you'd be remarkable. It's, it's not easy. Any breaking any habit's not easy, but it's like the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. And it doesn't feel restricted. It feels incredibly liberating. You know, I didn't come to low carb for weight loss by any means, if anything, the opposite. But um, <laughs> I have also felt that those similar effects where you feel like a little bit liberated. You feel like you can just give your body what you need and enjoy food and indulge in food. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, I mean, it, it is wild how widespread this, this sort of addiction to sugar and, and insulin is. And I see it in the hospital all the time where I, I had this one patient who we were trying to get to surgery um, multiple days in a row, but he would wake up brec- for breakfast and before surgery, you can't have a food, your, your NPO. Um, so you can't have any food or anything to drink for like 12 hours before surgery. And sure enough, every morning breakfast would come, he would go without it. And then he would say, I can't, I can't wait for, for the surgery. And, and, you know, and that's, it's like that for so many people, one of the worst things that you can do for your patient relationship in the hospital is to forget to give somebody, um, a meal order, uh, you know, if they, if they, are hungry and um, and you just see how people need to get that meal every couple of hours in order to sort of maintain their peace of mind. Um, and it's so so freeing to be broken and free from that. Eat people. Yeah. So diabetics getting waffles and bananas. Right. Yeah. If you look at the, uh, have you seen the the? You have to look up the nutrition label. Yeah. For boost, soothe, balance nutrition. It's sort of like a meal replacement drink. Yeah. Give to patients in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Who sues balance nutrition? It's just a single bottle, a little drink. And there are 65 grams of carbs and zero grams of fiber. Now, that's not bad enough. It's a 65 grams of carbs, which is a lot, especially if a diabetic is drinking it, mm-hmm. and um, zero grams of fiber and 15 sugar. So that sugar, 15 grams, is coming from cane sugar. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that 15 grams of sugar is a lot, especially if you say you give it to a diabetic. But where's the missing 50 grams of carbs? Because you have 65 grams of net carbs because of zero fiber, 15 grams of sugar from cane sugar. So where are the other 50? You look on the label and the the second ingredient after water is brown rice syrup. Now for legal reasons, they don't have to label it as sugar, even though it has a higher glycemic impact than pure cane sugar. It's 80, 65 to 85% maltose, which has a GI of 105, which is higher than glucose, but they don't even have to label it as sugar. So this is, even if we're like discarding pure cane sugar, this is 50 grams of pure sugar that is unaccounted for that, say a diabetic might be drinking. Right. I, I've seen a diabetic with a continuous glucose monitor eat a little caramel, like a little caramel the size of maybe uh, a couple quarters. Like, stacked up and their blood sugar goes to 300 milligrams per deciliter. Mm-hmm. Imagine what happens when they drink that drink, but that's advertised as full, like nutrient replete meal replacement, balanced nutrition, boost, right. soothes, balanced nutrition. Right. Those are the optics of things. Right. Um, 
and and and, and you can see the effect on society. You and I were just in a, a talk before we got on with this, and um, one of the things we were talking about is the dietary guidelines and and how they've not only failed to address the obesity epidemic, they've exacerbated it. So if you look at the trend of obesity over time, the dietary guidelines were implemented in the 1980s. Before that, obesity was going up. After that, obesity goes up at a higher rate. As soon as they implement, you can look at the graph, obesity rates accelerate. So this is not just correlation. This is a natural experiment showing we had an intervention, the standard guidelines, which we say, base your diet on carbohydrates with less fat, what happens? Obesity goes through the roof. Diabetes is accelerating like nothing else. It's costing the 24% of total healthcare dollars, a billion dollars a day. By mid-century, one in three people might be diabetic. And it just comes, this is totally preventable. Alzheimer's disease too. Right now, 5 million people. By mid-century, maybe 13.8 million people. It costs $1.1 trillion by mid-century. And these are preventable diseases. Um, that again, just come down to Alzheimer's, uh, like proper nutrition, proper human nutrition. And I would argue that that probably has to have some degree of low carb component at some point. It doesn't need to be chronically in all people, but I think at some point it just makes metabolic sense. And we can talk about all different diseases. We can talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease if you want, because I think that is a really misunderstood piece of low carb diets Mm -hmm. because of the conception the common knowledge that quote fat contributes to heart disease right sure. um, ldl2 yeah if you have the time let's let's talk yeah. a little bit about that uh, are you so, going to start with talking about ldl like i had sort of referred to before sure we can start there so um let me try, i'm trying to think i think uh, well so- one one thing that i'll say just to kind of um you know set the stage for this is uh uh, you know, as you've maybe heard from your doctor before, from a nurse, that uh, largely LDL, you know, has been thought of as quote unquote bad cholesterol versus HDL being quote unquote good cholesterol. But there's been a lot more information coming out about the the nuance behind that and about, and, and about that LDL really isn't um, just one thing, but that there's large fluffy LDL particles and small dense LDL particles that can, you know, wreak havoc on, on the, the blood vessels and what's happening really in heart disease and even, you know, in stroke risk in the brain is, is this, um, is atherosclerosis being one of the the root causes of it, where we get sort of the hardening of the arteries and it's related to these, to the small dense LDL particles. So I'll, 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 so first of all, Cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer of Americans. I think about 650,000 people per year. Mm-hmm. So obviously an extreme issue. And um, it's true that there is an association on the population level. Remember, 80% of our population is metabolically unhealthy. I'll explain why that matters in a minute. But on the population level, there's an association between LDL and increased uh, cardiovascular disease. It, it's, it's actually kind of small, but there is an association on the population level. That said, let's talk about the life cycle of an LDL. So your liver produces LDL in a, a form called very uh, VLDL, so very low density lipid protein. And what that is, is um, it's like a boat, it's like a spherical particle, and it's carrying fat, triglycerides, 
and um, cholesterol. And so the boat goes around your body and drops off fat to places that need it. So say like the muscle tissue, it'll drop off the fat and then it'll return as big fluffy LDL and then get taken up by the liver. And so you have this natural cycling of the VLDL going out, dropping off fat, if you're burning fat, and then the big fluffy LDL coming back being taken up by the liver. That's a perfectly healthy natural process. That's fine. That won't cause you any issues. What happens though, is that if you are metabolically unhealthy and you're say eating a lot of sugar, the LDL, that big fluffy LDL that's supposed to be going back to the liver and getting taken up, it gets damaged. So that boat has a passport that it needs to dock at the liver called ApoB. And if there's sugar around in high levels, you're spiking your blood sugar, that passport gets glycated or damaged. In conjunction with processes like oxidative stress, which can happen if you're having a lot of like processed foods and processed seed oils, like soybean oil, canola oil, or um, corn oil, which are just in you know, restaurant foods, it's kind of thing we, most restaurants cook in. Um, then you get damaged, further damage to this, this LDL particle. So the analogy I use, just because a lot of people know Star Wars is, is that of Star Wars. So you can think of like the big fluffy LDL is Anakin Skywalker. He's not a bad guy. He's actually a good guy. There's a lot of power. He can do a lot of good things, but he can be turned into a bad guy. He can be turned into Darth Vader by the dark side. What is the dark side? The dark side is poor metabolic health. That's what we were talking about before. Insulin resistance, having high glucose in your blood by eating a lot of sugar, oxidative stress, stuff like that. So it's the metabolic health that turns good LDL, big fluffy LDL into small dense LDL. That small dense LDL can't actually get back up into liver. It sticks around and it can help contribute to cardiovascular disease. Um, so the small density LDL is bad. The issue though, is if you go get a standard lipid panel, you aren't separating between the small dense LDL and the big fluffy LDL. So what happens if you get a lot of small dense LDL stuck in your blood and your LDL goes up? Yeah, your LDL goes up and on the population level, it associates with cardiovascular disease because on the population level, LDL correlates with small dense LDL. But that's not true on the individual level, especially if you're metabolically healthy. So what you see in people who go on low carb diets is it depends where they're starting. If they're more overweight, LDL doesn't generally go up, often goes down or it won't change. Generally, LDL will only go up if you're quite lean. So there are these people called lean mass hyper-responders, and they're the 20 to 30% of people or even less um, who have an increase in LDL on low-carb diets. But the critical thing is, if you actually start to look at the different types of LDL uh, and what goes up in these people, it's the big fluffy LDL, the healthy LDL that does not contribute to heart disease. In fact, um, sometimes small dense LDL will go down despite big overall LDL going up. I can give you an example of uh, a, a case study I wrote up, the paper uh, name was, it's in Frontiers of Medicine, a standard lipid panel, so like HDL, um, triglycerides, and just LDL is insufficient for the care of a patient on a uh, ketogenic diet, so a low-carb diet. So in this person who was someone who saw a jump in LDL, LDL tripled. It went to over 300, from like 90, which is considered by stand, like, you know, a general standards good, to over 300, which is like, you're going to die of a heart attack. What happened to his small dense LDL? It went down. It didn't even stay stable. It went down by about 10%.
And that's because he's actually putting out more VLDL, more LDL um, family particles because he needs to ship the fat to his muscles because he's burning more fat and people with less fat in their body. So if you can think, you know, you go low carb, you're burning fat, right? You can burn it from the fat tissue that's over whatever muscle you're working. So if you're running, your quadriceps can be burning fat right off the fat there, the fat between the muscle cells or over the muscle, or it can be getting fat from the liver. Um, and so if you're leaner, you have less fat over the muscles, you might just need a little bit more of your liver pumping it out. So it makes sense that leaner people might have an increase in LDL. That's adaptive, that's totally healthy. And when, again, you look in these people, the bad LDL, which is the small dense LDL does not go up. They're metabolically healthy. It's the big fluffy that goes up in his adaptive mechanism. So just summarizing that for practical matters, LDL is not bad cholesterol. That's an oversimplification. It's the small dense LDL that's bad cholesterol. And the small dense LDL comes from healthy LDL being corrupted by things like sugar, insulin resistance, oxidative stress. So if you're living a, a you know, low carb lifestyle, even if you're eating saturated fats, if you choose to do that, and I'm not promoting a diet of just like cheese and butter um, and, and coconut oil and, and spread meats by any means. But if you include some of those foods in your diet, it probably is fine even if your LDL goes up. In fact, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology um, wrote and then later ranked as one of the most influential papers of 2020. A uh, paper stating, it was a state-of-the-art review by Astrup et al., um, stating equivocally that there is no evidence that saturated fat contributes to heart disease. None. In fact, there is an association between increased levels of saturated fat intake and reduced risk of stroke. So the constant, like eating a healthy whole foods, eating whole foods sources of saturated fat, well-sourced red meat, you know, and dairy and um, like dark chocolate, these, those are healthy foods, especially if you're eating a low carbohydrate diet. Um, I'm going to pause for a moment because I know that was a lot of, a lot on that. And I, I want to give you a chance to bring it down to earth a little bit um, <laughs> on some of the other nuances and some of the things you might want to look for or ask your doctor about conversations you might want to have, things you want to think about. Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, that was exactly the sort of small dense LDL exploration that I was hoping that we would do because, uh, you know, for the, for the average listener, you know, listening here, who's thinking about what they can do then to be more healthy, to protect against heart disease, to prevent, pre prevent against brain disease or Alzheimer's, um, against diabetes, then these are just more reasons why it's so important to decrease carbohydrate consumption and to avoid oxidative stress as much as possible. So oxidative stress, like we've alluded to coming from, uh, from seed oils being a common, common source. So, uh, you know, seed oils, things like, um, rapeseed, grapeseed, or canola oils. Uh, these are things that are expelled from different seeds in, in a very high pressure, high heat way where they become oxidized. They, um, in, in, oxidation. I don't know if we want to go down the whole rabbit hole of what oxidation is, but the way I explain oxidation, my analogy for it is, um, so, um, oxidative stress is a state associated with a generation of thing. You might've heard of things like reactive oxygen species or free radicals. They're highly reactive molecules that include oxygen in them. And the way I describe it is like, it's like a bull in a cellular China shop. So the reactive oxygen species are like the bowl inside your cell and they bounce around to damage everything, your lipid membranes, 
your mitochondria, your proteins, even your DNA get damaged. And so, you know, in this state of oxidative stress, you can imagine these little bowls inside your cells that are bouncing around and just smashing up everything and that damage accumulates. That's more or less what oxidative stress is in a um, nutshell. Yeah. And so we can avoid that by avoiding these seed oils and avoiding burnt foods in general. Um, yeah. So try to be careful with, you know, with, with getting uh, any of your, your foods too hot or, or, or caramelized. Um, and, uh, and then smoking something that also uh, increases oxidation as well. Um, yeah. So by decreasing carbohydrates, by decreasing oxidation, you know, then leaving room in the rest of your diet and lifestyle for everything else, be it, um, you know, higher, higher fats and higher protein. Uh, yeah. that's, that's more or less the, the recipe for, you know, improving your metabolic health. Yeah. I think it's some things we could talk about it. If you want to just like, you know, some practicals of like what to cook with, what to dress with, um, and also maybe what to look for mm -hmm. short things to look for. If you're going to get your, you know, your metabolic health assessed, um, do you want to, should we talk yeah, about sure. the water first? I think, I think, sure. Because it is complex. We've said a lot of things, a lot of markers you, you could get measured, but what are you probably going to be able to get measured and look for? I would say your doctor will probably order a standard lipid panel. If, if you can get them to order a subfractionation with a NMR. Um, that will tell you if you have small dense LDL elevation. But you can, you can actually get a good estimation of that. If you just get a, um, a standard lipid panel with HDL, triglycerides, and LDL, um, also get a fasting insulin with that. What I would look for there is I would, I would ignore the LDL, mm -hmm. um, to be perfectly honest. That's a big claim, but I would look at the HDL mm -hmm. and the triglycerides. Um, HDL, the, you want it above 40. I like to see it even higher, like above 60. In triglycerides, they say you want it below 150. I like to see it below 80. But um, if you have like an HDL, uh, try a triglyceride to HDL ratio. Think about that ratio. This is pretty easy. If you ratio your, your triglycerides to your HDL, and that ratio is around one, approximating one, that, that is a very, very, very good proxy for having pattern A or very little small dense LDL. If you want to look into it, look up a, a YouTube lecture about uh, interpreting lipid panels by Dr. Paul Mason, because he shows some graphs about why that is. But so you can proxy your small dense LDL by just looking at triglycerides and HDL. The ratioing your triglycerides to HDL, if you can get that near one, that's pretty good. So um, high, you want HDL high and you want triglycerides low. And, and remember, those are two markers having, say, low, tri, so having low HDL and high triglycerides and metabolic syndrome. LDL is not a marker of metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so the HDL and the triglycerides are important. And then the fasting insulin below six uh, microunits per liter is probably good. So if you can have a fasting insulin of like even below three, um, but definitely below six, and then uh, triglycerides below 80 and HDL above 60. These are, I'm setting pretty high bars to be perfectly honest. If your HDL is 50, that's, you know, okay. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty good estimation. You're pretty metabolically healthy. But if you want to measure at home and you go low carb, I would say, I wouldn't weigh yourself. You can if you want. Some people like to. But I think a much better proxy is um, waist circumference. So take a string, put it around your waist. And every week, um, you know, like 
cut this cut the string to where your waist is and see if it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Dr. Eric Westman does this with his clients. The reason I say waist circumference and not weight is because weight as a single proxy isn't actually very important. You can be have a BMI greater than 25, so you're overweight and be perfectly healthy. It's about where your weight distributes. Is it muscle? Is it fat? Is it visceral fat or subcutaneous fat? Mm-hmm. And so the reason to look at waist circumference is because it's a proxy for what's called visceral fat. So you have two types of fat, subcutaneous, which is under the skin, like your love handles, and the visceral fat that's inside your gut. And it's really only the visceral fat that's unhealthy. So if your waist circumference is going down and your visceral fat is going down, that means you're improving your metabolic health. We could even you know, have had this whole discussion centering on visceral fat and why it's important. But I've even seen some people if your visceral fat is high, it can actually impair your ability to lose weight, but you might redistribute your energy. I've seen patients where they're not losing weight. Like, doc, why am I not losing weight? And then you look, their waist circumference is going down and they're gaining like strength because they're like exercising. So they're building muscle and losing visceral fat. They're losing waist circumference. They're getting much healthier, but they're actually not losing weight. And it's because they're improving their metabolic health. So then your body's like, oh, I'm partitioning fuel in smarter places, in healthier places. So in terms of metabolic markers, triglycerides, HDL, look at that, insulin, and then waist circumference. Those are pretty easy things to look at um, that is are accessible to most people. I think that most physicians will be willing to order a standard living panel if you ask for it. Mm-hmm. And looking at that, you know, triglycerides to HDL. And you, you, you can look at the studies and like having high triglycerides is a much better marker for having uh, increased risk of coronary heart disease as a, compared to LDL. Mm-hmm. Um, by far, same with low HDL. These are much better markers. Absolutely. And if you have a high HDL, sorry, good. No, no, I was, I was just agreeing, and I was gonna then say, how do you suggest that people go about it? We were talking about some of the oils, how to, how yeah. to cook, how to dress, um, yeah. and you know, can you actually make tasty meals in a way? You know, sure. that's. I, um, I'll, I'll, one more thing I want to say though on the markers though. Yeah, go ahead. If you're someone whose LDL goes up. Mm-hmm you're probably going to enter a conversation with your doctor where they want to put you on a stat. Mm-hmm. Now that's a discussion between you and them. We can talk on another cast about the downsides of statins. I would definitely ask them about them because there are a lot of downsides is including as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly for all the literature on statins, there are no papers showing that LDL lowering of any type through medication, uh, including using statins, has any benefit on cardiovascular outcomes if you have high HDL and low triglycerides. So statins on the population level will lower risk, but that's in a metabolically unhealthy population with lots of small dense LDL. So if you are someone with low triglycerides and high HDL, then before going on a statin, I would suggest trying to find a paper showing that there's any benefit of that drug that has side effects in you. And you can ask your doctor to try to help you find that literature because I don't think it exists. In fact, there are people, Dave Feldman will give you $3,000 if you can find that paper. For all of the literature that exists, I, I just don't think the paper exists, but we overlooked that conception maybe because such a vanishingly small percentage of people are metabolically healthy. So if a doctor is assuming you're metabolically unhealthy, then yeah, maybe a statin will help, but I don't like to make that assumption. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So if you're listening to this and interested in changing your lifestyle, and then you do become metabolically unhealthy, say your LDL goes up, just think twice about that. Think about that fact that there is no literature showing 
either that LDL is sufficient to cause heart disease, alone sufficient, there is no literature. I've really tried to find that literature. And I, I, there's, there's none. I've seen people with, this is an extreme case. I'm not saying it's safe, but I've seen someone with an LDL of um, seven to 800 with, for multiple years with no progression of atherosclerosis on a coronary artery and calcium scan, coronary artery and calcium scan, none, which is astonishing. I wouldn't be comfortable with those, like an 800 LDL personally, but the simple fact that that individual had no progression with an LDL that high suggests, you know, LDL alone isn't sufficient to cause heart disease. Plus there's no evidence suggesting that LDL lowering improves it in metabolically healthy people. Well, we should, uh, we should save statins for another episode because that's something I'm yeah. interested in talking about, particularly from the perspective of Parkinson's disease or, or Alzheimer's. Sure. Uh, but it's, it's certainly a blunt tool that on a population level, um, you know, may have some effects, but the goal would be to, to get people to metabolic health. And that's really what's going to turn this around. I'm not saying it has no function. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. It, it requires more nuance than the algorithms we used to apply it, but um, absolutely getting to the practical. I mean, for in, in terms of cooking, the good cooking things are like anything that's solid at room temperature, lard, tallow, ghee, butter, virgin coconut oil should definitely be virgin. And, um, and then, yeah, cook whatever low carb veggies. I like the, the, the practical approach is just, you, you don't need to calorie count. Just have a sufficient amount of protein, maybe a fist, a fist and a half's worth. It can be steak, chicken, fish, whatever. If you're vegetarian, get some tempeh. And you can like fry it up in some, you know, nice oil. Eggs are great. I never get tired of eggs. Along with whatever veg, low carb veggies you like. I kind of spit off that list. Um, but you can look it up. Like from arugula to artichoke to zucchini. And then, you know, so base your meal around protein. You can fry in some fat and then have some like, you know, if you want to flush it out with some flavored low-carb veggies, whatever spices you want, and then add fat to fullness. You don't, you don't need to like drink oils. You can put on like a liberal amount of olive oil. I know we bash seed oils. I make an exception for two macadamia and sesame. That can be a whole other episode. I know before this, we went on, uh, I went on a diatribe about sesame and its chemistry. It's a little bit interesting, but and some seeds and raw nuts. Seed oils and nut oils are, are generally not great, but like raw, unroasted nuts crushed over something, that's fine. Um, let me just, like, whatever you, you can make curries with like coconut cream. You can do, um, I'm just going to like, one minute. I'm going to pull up my, just for some ideas. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I, one thing that I want to clarify there is when you said, you know, f fried, um, to, to consider that a lot of people, uh, you know, in the fried food that they have, they, the most common thing probably is to use seed oils for that, something like, uh, or a vegetable oil or, a, or canola yeah. oil. Um, but, you know, to, to, you know, kind of sear or to brown something, to a light degree with um, something like ghee or butter or something that has a higher um, smoke point uh, is, is a way to avoid the oxidation that you would get from seed oils. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's when I say fried, you mean pan fried lightly. And again, you, you mentioned about crisping things because mm -hmm. people like crisp things. Don't do it too much. If you do it every now and then, it's okay. If you want to actually reduce the production of what are called heterocyclic amines and um, um, 
uh, what was it gonna say? Advanced location and products. You can use uh, acids. So if you marinate your meat in like uh, a vinegar um, or a lime juice, that'll help protect against some of the production. But there's anything you can imagine having on a standard diet, you can do a substitution on a low carb diet. And as you adapt, it can be like, you can make, you know, um, certain granola bars with nuts and seeds, like cheesy breads, um, even pancakes, um, or hummuses, various salads, soups, um, and desserts. Like what are some of the desserts that we have in my book? I'm just going to list them off because they're kind of fun. If people are like missing sweet, because you don't need to, oh, I'm just too many things on my desktop. Um, worry about it. Well, one thing that I'm going to say is, you know, when people are looking for meals, I, I think it a really easy thing is that a lot of dishes that people are used to have like a base of carbs on the bottom. So it'll be pasta with something on top or rice with something on top. And if you can just take whatever that base carb is and change it out for something that's lower carb, like a, a cauliflower rice or a, like chopped zucchini or something like that, it, that, that makes it so easy. That's generally what I go with. I won't plug specific recipes, but yeah, you made a good point about both of those things. Like if you like rice, make cauliflower fried rice. That's so, like, you just put some ghee in a pan with like some Indian spices, some cauliflower rice, like, and then you fry it with like some eggs and put some meats in there and vegetables. Some chicken, great yeah. chicken. It's like a, um, um, what is it? That's like biryani. I don't know if you like Indian biryani, mm-hmm. um, but you can do that. Or if you like noodles, you can get zucchini noodles. You fry them up with like just a little bit of olive oil very quickly. They have a nice crunch to them. And then you can put like, you know, a low carb marinara over it. You can make your home homemade pesto with like, um, you know, macadamia nuts or even pine nuts and, and basil and, you know, pecorino. I love my A2 cheeses. Um, you know, there's some, you know, you can have dark chocolate, coconut mm-hmm. butter. If you go to Whole Foods, I am a huge fan and obsessed with this thing, Artisana's Organic Coconut Butter. I swear mm-hmm. they don't pay me. Cause I talk about them all the time, but I just eat that stuff with a spoon. It's just compressed coconut meat. That's all it is. Mm. And, and I don't know, I, I, I find it so delicious. Some people don't like it. I just like it with like a little bit of salt. And uh, even sometimes to be honest, I'll have a dash of honey. Like you can have those things. It just, it's about the dose. Right. Um, and so anyway, it, there's so many ways you can slice it. If people are looking for resources, um, ketodietapp.com is the website of my partner. There's thousands of things there. Literally anything you can imagine having, there'll be a substitute there and a recipe there. Dietdoctor.com has a lot of blogs along with recipes. It's really helpful for people to get started and um, start to explore this space. I think it's, you know, I, I, I think it's really pleasurable. I've really enjoyed it and everybody that I've, I've worked with as far as enjoyed it. I don't know anybody that's like educated and, and learns how to do it properly mm-hmm. um, feels anything but liberated. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole keto diet, it, it has gotten sort of mixed press. And I think that there's been, uh, you know, there's a, a type of dirty keto like you were referring yeah. to. And I think there's definitely uh, a better way to do it. So the, those are some really great uh, recommendations that, that you made. And I'll be happy to link down to your, uh, your yeah. cookbook for people to check that out as well. I'm excited to check it out. Mm-hmm. 
Hey listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.